but you have been like in the middle of nowhere for about 20 minutes or so on the highway before you get to the exit and then it's like three or four miles off the exit and yeah it is it can be kind of in the middle of nowhere what do you think's the most middle of nowhere division three campus you've been to I'd like to say Finlandia, but uh, it's actually kind of right in the heart of Hancock, Michigan, which is, you know, a town that is noticeable. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and like coming in that sense. Uh, I think there's an argument for anything on the Upper Peninsula being middle of nowhere. I might go at Alfred. Alfred is pretty much dead center in the part of New York where. Uh, you there would you wouldn't be there for any other reason except to find this town and go to either Alfred or Alfred State games. Nice, uh, nice pickup there. Yeah, I obviously I have never been to Alfred and have never been to Alfred State either, so I can't really uh, can't really say much about the town. Um, Lagrange is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's in the town, but the town is tiny and it's a really small campus. Um, God, I haven't really thought about so many things. Knox, I would bet that Knox College probably is about as middle of nowhere as I've as I've gotten. In addition, this doesn't help that the uh, um, that the football field is you know not really in the heart of campus either. So, Galesburg, Illinois, population whatever, you know, might be about as middle of nowhere as I've been. I think we could play this game for a long time. It could be a podcast a podcast by itself. That could be. That should. Uh, I was going to assign a number to it, something like podcast two eighty, which would be, I would guess, like in April or so. Football fans, it's now time for the D three Football dot com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D three Football dot com Around the Nation podcast, our twice weekly podcast about the largest division of college football we welcome you to podcast number 252 the one with the johnnies tommies and bears except those bears are actually panthers and it's the podcast for october 21st of 2019 thanks for listening thanks for joining us i'm pat coleman the executive editor of d3football.com and i'm keith mcmillan the former player former around the nation writer and the one who balances pat's energy the uh only thing i can think of is that you're probably not going to go back to playing would you ever go back to writing the column Boy, you could talk money. I don't know. I don't think I. I honestly don't think I have time. Um, I hear you. Maybe when I. Maybe when I'm an empty nester. Every once in a while, I. I think about you know. I now I'm at this age where I can't really do anything. Let's let's be brutally honest, right? Uh, I would be like lunchtime hoops or something at my age, and just like a guy who stands under the under the hoop and rebounds, or you know. I don't even know, right? I uh, at forty six, there's not much I can do without fear of really hurting myself. So I can't imagine going back to playing anything that I used to play. That's why you just go ahead and tear your Achilles, both of them now, re- have them rebuilt, and then you can go out and play without fear. How did that work out for you? Well, the one is great. It feels like it needs a stretch every morning, but other than that, good as new. The other one is still uh, apparently new. Yeah, in a week where the Johnny Tommy game was poised to overshadow everything else that was happening in NCAA Division III football, it turned out to not quite do that. 
as we ended the night with Birmingham Southern upsetting number seven ranked Barry. We're going to talk more about that and a lot of the other games that went on in week seven of the 2019 NCAA Division three football season coming up in just a moment. But before we do that, I'd like to remind you that our podcast this week is sponsored by Gotta Have It, our friends at gottahabitfanfoams.com, the officially licensed 3D foam fan wall signs seen across America, especially if you're a fan of the Purple Raiders of Mount Union, the Warhawks of UW-Whitewater. That's one I have on my wall here as part of my uh, recording studio slash office slash place where I store all my junk. Um, Mary Harden-Baylor in there as well. Johns Hopkins, East Texas Baptist. Uh, these are things that uh, a lot of other Division three schools could and should have. And it was uh, great to see a lot of people opening up their uh, Mary Harden-Baylor ones that had come in the mail recently. But uh, Keith, I, I can only imagine that there's all sorts of schools where this kind of representation would look really good. And again, it's an official looking product. It's worthy of your team's uh, logo and and your team's love. Again, it's, it's from people who are D3 and sort of, of, of from the grain of us. And I always want to support something that uh, that has the support of, of a uh, D3 community. And to be quite honest, it's something you'll actually get use out of. You'll find a place for it, whether it's in your home, uh, in the vehicle that you take to the games on Saturdays, and, uh, and you can bring it out to the game as well, wave it around. It has about the consistency almost of a foam finger, but it's, it's tough enough that you can nail it into your wall. Yeah, I would say even tougher than a foam finger. Looks really sharp. Uh, if you're a, you know someone who's in charge of an alumni association, or if you're a, a coach or a, a marketing director thinking about you know things that you want to do for marketing uh, and promoting your team next year, go to gottohaveitfanfoams.com. Uh, you can also find the link in the show notes for our show uh, or on the uh, blog page. Go there, find the information about uh, you know what these guys can do for your school. And if you're a fan of one of those teams we mentioned, or are Army or Navy or Air Force or Purdue, for example, go to gottahabitfanfoams.com. All right, Keith, so Johnny Tommy game, right? I have people who are not fans of St. John's or St. Thomas are probably pretty tired of hearing about it, but this was a pretty big game, and it was, of course it was in a great venue that looked so much better on Division Three football than uh, Target Field did because Target Field is a baseball stadium. and That's a big reason. <laughs> it's a huge reason. And Allianz Field is a football stadium for the other kind of football, but it's the right shape and everything like that. And uh, a great game for a good 45 to 50 minutes. And then St. John's kind of imposing its will and pulling away. Yeah. And since this is what my game ball is all about, I guess I won't um, belabor the point a whole lot, but a, a pretty great game or at least a great second half by the St. John's uh, offensive line and uh, and by virtue of, of them playing well, Jackson Erdman, Ravi Austin, Kai Barber, and, and all the skill players had great games as well. Um, St. Thomas, you know, in a tough spot because it's a, you know, it's a pretty darn good team. It's dominant when it's dominant, but having that earlier loss to, uh, to UW Eau Claire, they couldn't afford to, uh, to not win the Johnny Tommy game and, and turn it back to Tommy Johnny. And, uh, you know, they came out, they looked great, scored the first couple of touchdowns and, you know, you were there. So you probably know what the atmosphere was like, but the, the football stadium was uh, sectioned off. Well, and then again, we're, we're football as in non-American football, right? The soccer stadium had 
basically a Tommy section, a Johnny section. And so uh, it was, you know, the Tommy section was going pretty crazy pretty early on. And then, uh, and then things changed and it was all St. John's in the second half. And that's a team right now that, that earned its, uh, its spot in the top five, really it's been in the top four all year, but you haven't seen them have to dominate uh, or, or even just have to play really well in a really big game. The whole season points to this game. And, and for whatever reason, they don't play it in week 11. So here it is in week seven and it ends up being the game that that catapults the johnnies possibly into national title discussion and is going to end up knocking st thomas i believe out of the playoff picture all right we are going to talk about uh, st john's and national title discussion a little bit later in this podcast i will say uh you know as we touch on it a couple times later i will say now before we move on to some of our other uh, topics of conversation from week seven that uh, the one thing I, I would uh, caution anybody who's uh, following St. John's from afar or just observing St. John's from afar and is still thinking about that week one game against UW-Stout needs to stop thinking about it because there is almost nothing that is similar between uh, that team on offense and the team that they are putting out there now. Uh, I know Keith is going to talk more about the offensive line a little bit later, but I was uh, pretty impressed that uh, ben Barch, who's the starting left tackle, was one of the guys brought to the postgame news conference. That is not something that happens very often. It's usually when you see a, an O-lineman in a news conference, it's like a senior and the team has just been eliminated from the playoffs or it's the final week of the regular season and you want to have someone out there to represent the senior class and tell the senior class story. So that was a nice touch. Yeah, yeah. It's, and you're right. It's always a guy like Derek Blanchard. Or the guy from Augustana who won the Gallardi Trophy, who's just like an exceptional student, all around exceptional man. And they're like, we got to get this uh, this guy in front of the in front of the press at some point because O line generally, uh, not only do they not often talk to the media, but th- those are the kind of guys who like to keep their heads down and sort of be uh, be football guys, for lack of a better way to put it, and just be about the game and not about the uh, the being fancy and and talking to the reporters and, and, you know, showing off for the fans. Those are the guys who are, who are sort of the revel in doing the grunt work. The other game, of course, that we referenced just a couple of minutes ago, Birmingham Southern beating Barry. Barry coming into the game as the number seven team in the country. And uh, Barry was down 21-6 at the half. Uh, but they came out after halftime, kicked a field goal on their first possession of the second half and cut that lead down to 12. And then BSC just did not look good coming out of the locker room in the third quarter. They went three and out on their first two drives. Uh, one of them was three plays for minus 11 yards, had them backed all the way up inside their 15 so Barry followed that drive with a big pass play. It was set up first and goal from the three, but threw a pick on the goal line. BSC turned it over two plays later, and Barry had another first down goal to go and couldn't convert on that either, failing on fourth down from the four. So, like, having dodged a bullet twice, Birmingham Southern did some good work on its next drive with a deep ball, followed by a touchdown pass to Robert Schuford to go up 28-9, to and Barry did eventually get into the end zone, but it was on the final play of the game. I had a chance to chat with Panthers coach Tony Joe White about the big win and how his team reacted coming out of halftime. Our defensive staff and our defensive players, uh, they did just a fantastic job of of not panicking in those moments and staying poised. You know, we, we used the saying around our players that poise is a superpower. And uh, those guys, you know, just continued to execute and make sure we were gap sound and wrapped up, made tackles. And, you know, holding those guys to field goal attempts and, and, and getting stops on third down and fourth down was, was crucial, especially in the second half when, when they kind of made some adjustments defensively and, and put us 
uh, held us back a little bit on offense. You guys really seem to have a really good game plan against Mason Kinsey as well. That's a guy who's lit up a bunch of teams over the last couple of years, and you guys pretty held, pretty much held him in check. Yeah, Mason's a fantastic player and very talented, and and uh, you know, I mean, he's he's a guy that requires double coverage, and you know, we we tried to do that most of the night and and do some different things to to confuse, you know, uh, try to confuse their quarterback and. In regards to you know how we were playing coverage, and you know again, I just give a ton of credit to our defensive staff. Those guys did a remarkable job of preparing and and and, and putting our guys in position to be successful. Well, let's talk about offense then for a minute. Tell us about Robert Shufford. What kind of running back he is? Obviously, put up great numbers not just tonight, but previously for you this season. Tell for those of you who didn't get a chance to watch the game on Saturday night. Tell us what uh, this guy is all about. Well, Shuford is, he's just a, he's a great kid. Um, he came to us, he was a little bit undersized. Matter of fact, his first, first part of his freshman year, he was on the scout team. And um, he just, he was making our, our defense look silly on the scout team. So we brought him up and towards the end of the, his freshman year, he was playing some meaningful downs for us towards the end of the season. And, um, you know, just since then, he's, uh, He's worked extremely hard in the off seasons and putting on good muscle weight and and uh, just like all our our young kids when we first got here we played a lot of young kids that didn't know right from left a lot of them and now they've grown up and they've been in the system a few years and he's got his mind wrapped around and learned how to speak the language if you will um, of our offensive system and and uh, just the, the reps and and the training that he's done has put him in an incredible position to have some great success. Now he's, he's the kind of guy, man, he'll make you miss in a phone booth. He's not the fastest guy on the field, but uh, it's hard to touch him in space and uh, he's fun to watch. This conference uh, really wide open this year now, especially, I think we already thought that, uh, you know, center would challenge and that uh, if Hendricks was healthy, that they could challenge and, and and Trinity, for that matter, I don't think anybody had any idea about Austin and maybe no idea about you guys, and now there's four teams tied with one loss at the top of the conference standings. Yeah, you know, and there's some of those two loss teams that, you know, could still control their own destiny, you know, if, if they went out. And, mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's – the SAA has become a very, very uh, competitive league, um, you know, just year in and year out. Uh, there, there are teams in our conference that uh, I think could could do, you know, our third and fourth place teams. I think could win a lot of leagues across the country. So that's uh, there's there's great coaching in our league. There's there's uh, down here in the south. There's there's such rich talent um, to recruit, and uh, you know, this this is a tough conference. So yeah, you know, I don't know if. If you ask those coaches, I don't know if anybody was under the radar. I think, you know, week in and week out, you got to come to play. Um, there's been a few teams that have been a little bit more talented. But, uh, you know, all in all, I think the, the league as a whole is, is very, very tough, very, very competitive. Pronunciation 101. Bunavistic. Monon Belt. Bunavistic. Gallardi. Seal. Muhlenberg. Robert Schuford. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Schuford. I have to make a note of that for later, obviously. I'm not so sure that the fourth place SAA team would win a lot of conferences across the country, maybe a few, 
But Coach White makes some good points about why conference teams can prosper. For all the football talent in the South, there are no D3 options in Florida and few in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and surrounding states. The D3 presence in Arkansas is the SAA. Tennessee has Sewanee, Rhodes, and Maryville from the USAC. So one reason newish programs like Barry and Birmingham Southern have been able to join D3 and sustain success is because they aren't in places like Ohio or Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or Virginia where a dozen or two dozen D3 schools are competing against NAIA, D2, and FCS kids for talent. There's a heavy D2 presence in the South, but the kids who go to Valdosta State and West Alabama aren't necessarily the kids who go to Millsaps and Austin and Birmingham Southern. SAA schools, along with a few in the USA South, have been able to market themselves to an audience of players that previously didn't have many options close to home. Yeah, I think if by a lot you meant maybe half a dozen conferences that the fourth place team in the SAA could win, then I could probably sign off on that. But those same half dozen uh, conferences could be won by the last place team in the WIAC or probably any of six teams in the MIAC. Saturday was also a day in which I thought maybe, and maybe you thought so as well, uh, we'd think about reviving the play of the week. But that would mean that you know I would be working on that right now instead of you and I recording this podcast together. So uh, obviously there was that uh, Emery and Henry Hail Mary catch at the goal line, a couple of nice plays by St. John's, a, a really nice play by Concordia Chicago running back Lance Moyes, who hurdled one defender, stiff-armed another, and got to the end zone against Eureka. And there was even a nifty flea flicker by Finlandia, which caught hope napping for one first quarter play and maybe delayed the inevitable by about 30 seconds and of course one of the reasons we stopped doing it besides the the workload and we probably should have found a uh, an eager d3 uh player former player videographer videographer to uh to farm that out to but one of the reasons we stopped doing it is because schools became savvy enough to get that um video out on saturday as soon as it happens tag it with sc top 10 and D3 football, D3 Keith, and um, figure out how to get it into the pipeline, you know, an hour after it happened, rather than waiting for us to get all the submissions um, and then award this award on Monday. There was another one I saw that was tagged SC Top 10, and and it reminded me when we used to vote. Now to the D3football.com play of the week. It was a a play early in the Gettysburg-Juniata game. It was a play-action pass out of the end zone. Quarterback has plenty of time to throw, and once you have time to throw, you know, he just heaves it. Guy beats his man, 98-yard touchdown pass. And remember we used to have these philosophical arguments during play of the week where we're like, there has to be something more than just a touchdown that happens on this play or a long play or a long run. Sometimes you would see a run, the guy busts through the line and takes it to the house 90 yards. You're like, eh, but if he busts through the line, runs a guy over, jukes somebody, drops the ball, picks it back up, and then somersaults into the end zone, then you're like, that's a play of the week. Yeah, exactly. I also saw a a Whitewater game that was – that or a play that was not much dissimilar to that looked like a pretty cool play and a nice uh, you know um, the defender rips the ball away from uh, Stevens Point quarterback and then runs untouched to the end zone where the play is like that one thing that happens and then yeah there's another 43 or so yards of running that is not the interesting part I I, I hear you we definitely had those discussions I think if we went back to that or if we go back you know, rewinding a couple of years and find that person. I don't know if we're going to find that person who's going to work for free because that is about all the budget I have. Well, you did have a great play though in the, in the Emory and Henry play. And even though, you know, a Hail Mary is really just a pitch and catch, it's throwing into a uh, crowd of people 
one guy has to come down with it. That's sort of a, a spectacular thing. In this case, catches on the one yard line and has to like kind of fall bull his way into the end zone. But then, and this is what really makes it for me. And sometimes we would make exceptions for okay plays if they happen in certain situations. Um, the team storms the field after the game. And, you know, as much as as a player, and I know I tweeted this, I hated Emory and Henry with the white hot heat of a thousand suns when I was playing for Randolph Macon because they were the school that often stood in our way um, on the way to the ODAC championship. Can't help but but be a little heartwarmed to see that happen, you know, unless you play for Washington and Lee or you're an alum of Washington Lee who happens to be listening to the podcast. We're sorry to revel in this in this moment for Emory and Henry, but that was a great play. And I also thought in in a losing effort, Josh Parks had a run where uh, where he just took a toss sweep. Um, I think I think it was a toss. Um, ran, you know, runs through a tackle or juke somebody, runs through an arm tackle, and then runs a guy over with a shoulder and, and goes in for the touchdown. You're like, that's three. You know, one of those would have been impressive. You do all three on a play. Yeah, you, know, you put that in the in the play of the week mix. So would be fun to do that. But I think if you guys are following us on Saturdays or you're following along on Twitter on Saturdays or Instagram, to be honest with you, you see a lot of these plays out there now. Uh, just look for that D3FB hashtag and it'll basically be like a, a nonstop feed of what's going on. You'll see great plays. You'll see not so great plays. You'll see atmosphere. And it's all those things we had been trying to convey through the different video, video elements we'd done over the years. You want to do a round of buy and sell before we get to game balls? You pitch them, I'll catch them, sell them, whatever. Something? Yeah, we'll put them on the market. Let's start with Olivet, the Comets. Yeah, I, I'd like to abstain, and I know that's you know that's not how the game works, but uh, I'd really love to see what the Comets do this week against Hope because I think that's their their biggest competition in the MIAA. But uh, forced to choose, and and that's the way this works. I, I think you have to buy on them at the moment. It's uh, you know they just they look good defensively and offensively. They're coming off a win at Trine, thirty four seventeen, and you know Trine isn't necessarily the the team that uh, that went to the postseason last year. But I think when you get a team that's off to a good start, six and zero, you you look at a couple of things. And last week there were a couple of, or this past Saturday there were a couple of teams in action that were unbeaten, and they're good and that's great but they hadn't they hadn't beaten anyone remotely impressive and that was Wilkes St. Olaf they both got drilled on Saturday you look at a team like Olivet even though all the teams that it's played aren't aren't great when it plays a a bad team it it takes care of business and when it plays a relatively good team uh like it has in uh in the past couple of weeks against Adrian and Trine you know they they find ways to win so I, I think we'll see what really they're made of against Hope and I probably wouldn't pick Olivet um, against Hope this coming week uh, because that game is at Hope and Hope has uh, been pretty impressive as well. But I think you have to, generally speaking, you have to say you buy on them right now. Yeah. Um, you know, so you've uh, you've not quite convinced me. I am a little higher, I guess, on all of it than I was when I threw them out there 45 seconds ago or whatever it was. Um, but you know, I, I appreciate that the whole taking care of business thing is, is definitely important. I just think that, uh, I'm going to go to the same thing. Whereas uh, even Olivet at home, I wouldn't favor against hope. And if I can't uh, favor them at home, then I'm not going to pick them. And I think that's probably why I would sell. And I'm glad you and I didn't compare notes. And so far, this is good. Let's try UW Oshkosh. Well, the thing I like about Oshkosh is they came into the season not really sure what they had at quarterback and they still aren't getting like whopping passing numbers, but Kobe Burkheimer ha has turned into uh, the guy for them and uh, is 
the the interesting thing is it's not through the air, but he's doing it on the ground in the, in the 31 three win on Saturday against uh, Eau Claire. Uh, he ran 15 times for 102 yards and three touchdowns didn't throw for any touchdowns, but, and was only 11 for 27 passing. So clearly, you know, they, they have to be creative offensively and, uh, and that's fine. You know, if you can get it done. And I mean, Eau Claire is the same program that, that beat St. Thomas that, uh, you know, that's played pretty well against other tough teams so far this season. So a 31, three, win for Oshkosh was pretty convincing for me. I don't know. I mean, they still have to play um, Whitewater. They still have to play Platteville. So we'll see on them. But I think right now you probably uh, you probably have to like, you probably have to buy them, especially when you look at the schedules to date. At the time, we thought that Salisbury loss was, was kind of a bad loss for them. Um, it turns out Salisbury is pretty darn good. They're in the top 10 now and you lose to them, uh, 24 19 on the road and on the road from Wisconsin to Maryland. It's certainly uh, not as bad a loss as it may have appeared to be at the time. I'm looking at what they have left and you mentioned Platteville and Whitewater. They also have lacrosse on a home game against river falls at five and one. Now I figure um, I'm thinking a split in those final four games and they end up seven and three. And I think that that means for me that I have to sell also on this one. I, I just don't think that, uh, um, you know, it's not quite, peak Oshkosh I think that they uh, can win uh, at lacrosse if they can hold lacrosse to under nine touchdowns that uh, would certainly help um, and I think they can beat River Falls uh, and let's see you know maybe they'll surprise and go eight and two maybe that week 11 game against Whitewater will be for a crazy amount of marbles which would pre uh, would be pretty awesome and for a night game in Oshkosh on November 16th everybody bundle up because a it's going to be cold as you know what and B, uh, those two teams are just going to go at it. I like how that game was for like most of the marbles, not all of them. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Well, it's time for game, game balls. balls, and mine is going to go to UW lacrosse quarterback Evan Lewandowski. When I saw this guy play against Illinois Wesleyan, he was 14 for 40 for 224 yards and a touchdown, like just over five yards an attempt. Saturday against UW River Falls, he was 28 for 44 for 591 yards and tied the Division Three single game record with nine touchdowns in a 63-49 win against UW River Falls. Yes, he threw touchdown passes nine times. Nine times. And all of them were in the final three quarters as the game was actually scoreless through the first 15 minutes. Not sure what happened to Evan Lewandowski since week two, but he gets my game ball. Well, I won't linger on it because this game got a lot of shine, but I'm giving my game ball to the St. John's offensive line. Hit that rhymed. It stood out watching the game how much time Jackson Erdman had to throw. When the Johnnies did run, Kai Barber had lanes to plow through. St. Thomas is known for being big and physical, and the Johnnies under John Gallardi were more of the undersized, disciplined, fun-loving, finesse kids. Well, the Johnnies are straight-up maulers now, and if you're a Johnnies fan wondering whether this team has a national championship shot, if you block like you did on Saturday, the answer is yep. Having a great quarterback can be nullified by a leaky line, but yesterday, Josh Joyer, Dan Greenheck, Nick Newman, Carl Rude, Ben Barch, and we'll throw in the tight end Jack Kemper, pushed around a defensive line, a defense that might have that might well feature players similar to what a UW Whitewater or a Mary Harden Baylor would feature. And that's the kind of team that the Johnnies would have to beat deep in the postseason. The numbers weren't outstanding. Erdman was sacked twice and threw a pick, and the Johnnies ran for 107 yards at 3.8 per clip. But in context, they were great. The Johnnies passed 40 times and ran 28 and got 451 passing yards. 
They also scored four touchdowns in the second half and ate up eight minutes and 20 seconds of the last 11 minutes and 20 seconds with 12 play and nine play touchdown drives. The Johnnies at one point took over with a five-point lead on their own 77-yard line and went 93 yards for a score. That and the offensive line's performance all day is game ball worthy. My team on the rise in the top 25 or on my top 25 ballot is Salisbury. I found room to move the Seagulls up a couple of spots after their 38-7 to win against Rowan on Saturday. Salisbury is as high as seven on one person's ballot, and it's just one of 10 teams which is on all 25 of our voters' ballots, which I find interesting. But I watched a little bit of that game on Saturday, and Salisbury and quarterback Jack Lanham were just basically having their way with everyone when they had the ball. And someone clicking that hard right now needed to move up a bit on my ballot. Overall, in the poll, they moved up from number 12 to number 10. Well, my riser is Ithaca, not because necessarily Ithaca played great this past Saturday, although they did. Uh, they beat Hobart 34-0. And again, if you want to play the old comparative results game, you know, Hobart way back in week one dominated Brockport State. Ithaca now has, has beaten Alfred by double digits, 27-9. Uh, they beat St. John Fisher when they were unbeaten. And they've scored at least 34 in every game. And the past couple weeks have not uh, given up much either. So... 34-0 against Hobart, pretty dominant. And as you look at teams who are creeping up in the top 10, especially with Barry now out of the way, St. Thomas dropping way out of there, I think we have to start considering not just Ithaca and Cortland as top 10 teams, as I believe they both are on my ballot. I can actually look at this live. This is great podcasting here, everyone. I'm sure you're uh, loving this moment. Yeah, I do have both of those teams in my top 10. I think we have to start considering whether a team from the East, and this is where Frank Rossi and, and James Baker and the, and the in the huddle and the folks over there will, will get excited because you have teams now who you start to wonder, can these teams legitimately go deep into the postseason? RPI went to the quarters last year. Brockport went to the semifinals the year before. Does one of these teams have what it takes, especially when they're on a collision course to face each other in week 11? So they're going to have a, a, a tough result. They're going to stay focused the whole entire season. So practices aren't going to get lazy because, you know, you're you're 6-0 and and you're pretty sure you're going to win the conference. Those two teams are, are going to stay um, focused. I think and – th and then, you know, you have a, a, a fairly elite quarterback. I think we may have a team in Ithaca, and it sort of it remains to be seen, but it's deep enough in the season where we can start speculating about who's going to make the playoffs and who's going to look good when they get there. I think you start ha having to wonder, is Ithaca and is Cortland one of those teams? And specifically, just as it relates to the poll, I think it, there's no harm in floating both of those teams up into the top 10, given how they've performed so far. Yeah, I tell you, I think that uh, it's a very good shot that if the, those teams both go into MetLife Stadium 9-0, and uh, then the winner comes out and is a legitimate number one seed in the playoffs. And not just legitimate number one seed in, in that the committee can justify putting them there, but also legitimate number one in that I think they could perform and live up to it and not get blown, uh, get their doors blown off when they face someone from the North region or the West. Yeah. And I think while we're here, Cortland on Saturday, a 31 21 winner against Alfred, they have to play, they have to go to St. John Fisher, uh, play Brockport, or go to Hartwick and then face Ithaca. So they do have the tougher road to, to being unbeaten. Ithaca on the other hand has dispatched probably its toughest opponents. Uh, so far, although it kind of has a tough road as well 
in that after Rochester this next week, playing Union, which creeped into the top 25 at RPI and then Cortland. So uh, we may be getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I think that also means that these two teams both stay focused. They continue to creep up the pole. And if uh, if we're lucky, we'll get a, a matchup of 9-0 and teams at MetLife in week 11. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's too early. We've played seven weeks. We've played 63% of the schedule. It's no longer early. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. My team that will take a fall in the top 25 is Barry. Obviously, the biggest upset of Saturday by a wide margin. But, uh, Barry had its chances, as we talked about a little bit earlier. After Barry had floated up to number seven in the poll, they plummet this week to number 22. They uh, got knocked off of at least a half dozen ballots altogether. The quote unquote normal fall from a reasonable loss or the fall that we generally see a team take after a loss like this is 12 spots, all things considered. But with nobody else getting upset, it's just a free fall for Barry this week. Yeah, and Barry was certainly overranked at seven. And even though they have a couple of good wins over Hendricks and Trinity, I think the fall can mostly be explained by who they lost to because Birmingham Southern wasn't on voters' radars before Saturday, and the game wasn't particularly fluky. St. Thomas was the only other team on my ballot that lost, and I think the same logic applies. You can excuse the Tommies for losing to you know Saturday, losing to the Johnnies, a top five team the entire season. But now that second loss against UW-Eau Claire, it's hard to reconcile that against, say, a Wartburg or a Cortland, which haven't played schedules as tough as St. Thomas has, but also have, a, have hardly struggled to get to 6-0. and You know, meantime, a team like Case Western survives against St. Vincent and avoids suffering Barry's fate, so they don't take a fall this week. But I think St. Thomas, they deserve to take a fall because after picking up loss number two, 10 voters dropped them completely off their ballots. My off-the-beaten-path highlight this week comes from Maine. Over on D3Hoops.com, especially in uh, women's basketball coverage, there have been some quality programs in the state of Maine, and we have often referred to games between those teams as the main event. Well, Division Three football had one of those on Saturday between the University of New England and Husson, and it hasn't taken long for the newest Division Three team in the state to vault past the previous new kid on the block. UNE scored three touchdowns in the second half to get past Husson 31-21. As Brian Peters ran for two touchdowns and threw for a third, and the Nor'easters' defense stiffened against the run, allowing 150 yards but on 38 carries. You know, we knew this would be a tough year for Husson, moving out of the ECFC and into a slightly tougher conference, but losing at home to a second-year program and falling to 2-4 and four in the process and losing some bragging rights in the state of Maine might have been unexpected. Thought you heard enough about that Gettysburg-Juniata game in this podcast with the previous mention of the 98-yard score? Aha, I got more. Gettysburg went ahead comfortably against Juniata 24-6 midway through the third quarter on Saturday and probably thought it was going to cruise to its first win. But the Eagles came back with a 29-yard Shahid Ross touchdown catch on the following drive and added a two-point conversion to make it 24-14. It would stay that way until Austin Montgomery connected with Ben Lauver for 46 yards on a third and 22. Suddenly the game changed, and three plays later, Juniata was in the end zone, and that 24-6 Gettysburg lead was 24-21. An interception less than two minutes into the next bullet drive gives Juniata a short field, and in two plays, holy crap, the Eagles have the lead? The bullets must be deflated, hang their heads, they've blown it. Well, not so fast. Logan Edmonds completes four or five passes and runs three times on a nine-play 76-yard drive, capped by Mike Welsh's one-yard scoring run with 30 sec 34 seconds left, and Gettysburg wins 31-28.
So put that one in the annals of blue huge lead, then one anyway, and file it under Keese off the beaten path highlight for week seven of 2019. Yet another one of those times where I learned something on the podcast when uh, Keith's off the beaten path highlight is something that I haven't even seen. That's awesome. Surprise! My most surprising result for this week has to be one of the most surprising results of the season, and that is Manchester over Franklin. Keith, if you had told me on the Friday podcast, you know, number 251, that I had to pick a team to win that shared a name with a prominent English soccer team, I'd have picked Norwich, and Norwich was on bye this week. Manchester came into this game on Saturday just 1-4 with its only win against Defiance, and Manchester hadn't beaten Franklin since 1997, which is to say the entire lifetime of D3Football.com. But Donovan Henderson chewed up yards, and he chewed up clock in the ground game, and Willis Sands and Jaquan Walker each intercepted Braden Smith at the goal line, and Manchester knocked off the Grizzlies 30-21. to I like that, uh, that English soccer joke. It made me laugh out loud. The biggest surprise for me, Pat, was Hamilton's win over Amherst. Because the NESCAC is insulated from the rest of D3, some of you might not realize how momentous an upset this is. Hamilton has played Amherst 30 times. The only wins in the series are 1992 and Saturday. Amherst is usually in the mix for the NESCAC title, and at 4-1 and one coming in, they were this season. The last time the Mammoths only won three games in a season, they weren't even called the Mammoths. And yours truly was in high school. That was back in 1993. Meantime, Hamilton won its third game this season and now has three games three chances to win a fourth for the first time since 1996. Hey, I was out of high school by then. Here's the kick. It's up. It's on its way. It's got distance. And he got it. The kick is good. Sam Thoreen. From 39 yards out. Sam Thoreen. Splits the uprights. And the Continentals are feeling it now. The win, which came on a 40-yard tie-breaking Sam Thoreen field goal with four seconds left, also put Middlebury in total control of its destiny since it's now two games clear of everyone except Williams and Wesleyan, which is already beaten, so effectively it has a two-game lead on those two teams as well. One of Mid's final games is against Hamilton, and if Dave Murray's team really has broken through, a win there would be a good way to show it. Hot off the presses, my stat of the week comes from Western New York, where Buffalo State got into the win column for the first time this season, defeating the University of Rochester. Now, that isn't the stat in and of itself, although, yeah, sure, wins are the most important stat there is. I got that. Uh, what I'm looking at, though, is the number of penalties the Bengals racked up in the process, which is 177 yards on 14 penalties. You do the math. Those are some pretty heavy penalties, like three unsportsmanlike conduct calls, five personal foul calls, plus a roughing the passer. In fact, a personal foul and a separate roughing the passer on the same play got Rochester from its own 33 to the Buff State 33, and Rochester still came up empty-handed on that drive. I don't want to glorify these things because on paper this makes this a very ugly game. And in fact, you know, now I'm thinking I shouldn't even mention any of this, so call me for intentional grounding, loss of down, and I'll turn it over to Keith. That penalty will be enforced from the previous spot. We'll replay fourth down. Well, I'll stay in that part of the country where Brockport allowed 166 passing yards and just 99 total yards in a 38-0 win over Hartwick. Let those math muscles work. It was my understanding that there would be no math. Yep, that means the Golden Eagles held the Hawks to negative 67 yards rushing, largely on the strength of six sacks. Remember, the NCAA counts sacks as lost rushing yards, unlike the NFL. But Hartwick ran 21 running plays total, so there were 15 other runs where they didn't do much. 
It's not close to the highest sack total of the season. Mass Maritime had 11 against Worcester State, and Case Western Reserve had a 10-sack game. But the low rush total beat St. Thomas, and it's minus 44 from earlier this season. Perhaps we were too hard on Brockport back in week one since it is now won five straight since the season opening loss against Hobart. Well, I do know yeah, that they've had a couple of those really dominant defensive performances uh, in in a row, and that is exactly one of the things that they were doing when they were running up those 13-win uh, and 11-win seasons the last two years. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet that this may not be the first time that Brockport's rushing total was a stat of the week. No, it's probably not. No, indeed. Negative 67, though, is pretty like that's, you know, you just look through all the numbers for, from the week and uh, there were you know, some that stood out and there's some big numbers that kind of happen um, all the time. You know, like Linfield scoring 77 points in itself is not uh, amazing. But sometimes you look into a game like that for a weird number. But uh, but yeah, the Brockport thing was just like negative 67 and it was. It was uh, by far the most this season. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. That was the time of the podcast when we go to Twitter. We go to Twitter on Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings to give you guys an opportunity to throw a question at us that we might choose to use on the podcast. We got a couple of them. If you're tired of St. John's and St. Thomas, I am so sorry. But uh, this one is from S- at SJU Johnny, who is Brad Cronin, uh, asking, is St. John's a legit national title contender at this point based on their performances against number six Bethel and number 11 St. Thomas over the last two weeks? And the reason I threw this in here, Keith, is because it was the spot where I wanted to talk about one thing that made me kind of shuffle around not really shuffle around, but I swapped number two and number three. I've had St. John's in the number two spot throughout the entire season so far based on the fact that they gave a better game to Mary Harden-Baylor last year in the playoffs than Mount Union did. And I saw something over the course of the last two weeks of watching St. John's that troubles me, at least in the sense of, I don't think I can make this my number two team. I'm going to make them my number three team. And that is just the fact that St. John's kicking game is really struggling right now. And, you know, you need at the, the point in the season or at the point Uh, in a program when you want to be a team that's going to go to the national championship game, which is what I guess we think a number two team would do based on the bracket or depending on the bracket, you're going to need to make your extra points. You're going to need to be able to make a a short field goal, a 30 yard field goal or something. If the, uh, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, you can't be leaving points out on the field. They've done that the last two weeks against Bethel and against St. Thomas. It hasn't hurt them because they've won those two games handily, but it's enough for me to make me wonder about them as a legit national title contender. That's just like one kind of really glaring facet of the game that they're kind of missing. Well, yeah, and it's points are at a premium when you get deep into the postseason and you get into those close games. That game that you referenced last year, Johnny's and Mary Harden-Baylor was a 21-18 game. So, you know, you, you miss a couple of extra points in a game where two teams are matched like that, you could end up living to regret it. I've got no qualms talking about a, a game with, with a number five and, you know, with two two ranked teams, and these teams were both in the, in the top 15 coming in uh, this week. We could talk about this one plenty. I think we did it when, or we should do it going forward. We did it when it was Little Brass Bell. We talked a lot about North Central Wheaton. I don't mind overdoing a game where two really great teams and really historically good programs are uh, are clashing. I, I did give my opinion early back in the um, in the game balls where I thought St. John's uh, can start having the national title discussion because um, because of the way the offensive line and the defense are playing. I think they will 
if they get into games where they can't just uh, go five wide and chuck the ball around all day and, you know, or they try that and, you know, they go three and out a couple of times, which sometimes happens when you, when you throw the ball. Um, I think they can survive in games like that because the defense is good enough. They're not going to give up a ton of points uh, in, in easy ways. And I think that um, you're not going to get your quarterback beat up, knocked out of a game more than likely if your offensive line is playing well. And, you know, even if you, if you have those games where you're, uh, you know, where you're trying to throw the ball and, uh, and, and you go three and out a couple of times, um, you're not going to get yourself into a situation where, um, you know, the, the quarterback doesn't have time to throw, makes bad plays, gives your defense a touchdown. So I think I think the way the offensive line, the defense is playing should be encouraging to Johnny's fans. And again, you don't have to have a perfect team to get to the to the stag bowl. You know, we saw Mary Harden Baylor get there two years ago with a freshman quarterback who didn't even make it back for a, a sophomore season. Didn't play well at all in the championship game. They scored zero points year before we saw uh, Mary Harden Baylor and UW Oshkosh play a 10-3 or 10-7 stag bowl where the offenses weren't perfect, you know, and, and those were super talented offenses, but you don't have to be perfect, I think, to be a national title contender. What you have to show, and I think this is what St. John's can take away from these games against Bethel and St. Thomas, is that you can play at the level of the type of programs you're going to see in the postseason. And so, Pat, you talked about uh, – I'd like to hear your, your ballot because I was a little confused on whether you had – what, who you had on one, two, and three the past couple weeks. I've been moving – I moved St. John's last week from four to three, uh, flipped them with Whitewater. I've had um, Mountain Union and Mary Harden-Baylor one, two all season, and I flipped Mountain Union back in the week that uh, that Mary Harden-Baylor was just kind of eh against Belhaven. Mountain Union hasn't missed a beat. They haven't um, played so much as a remotely close game. I think they deserve – to be number one at this point, even though you could certainly make the argument that until they see Mary Harden Baylor again, Mary Harden Baylor should be one. Um, but I'm surprised that you that you may have had St. John's in the in the two spot. But I think even teams that are one, two, three, four at this point in the season, seven weeks in, you're you're not even halfway to the Stag Bowl yet, right? Stag Bowl is is week 16. It's the 15th uh, game of the season for the two teams that make it generally. So. Um, those teams are not perfect at this point. They got a lot to work on. The thing you should be encouraged by for St. John's besides offensive line defense is that they, they're starting to develop some guys who can get open at all times for, uh, for Jackson Erdman. And, and I think you see Ravi Austin, uh, emerging as a pretty talented downfield receiver. So I'd be encouraged, you know, I think you're going to have to go through some really good teams to get there. I think Wheaton is really good. And, and you know, you know, you got your Bethel and your North central, and I think we talked about Ithaca and Cortland. Maybe one of those teams will, will be around and it'll be a challenge. But you got to go through Mountain Union, Whitewater, Mary Harden Baylor, most likely anyway. So it's going to be a great, potentially a great Final Four or another great postseason. Well, I appreciate you stalling long enough that I could pull up my uh, ballot and we didn't have to go to more scintillating looking up your ballot pod. Uh, my yeah, my number one is Mary Harden Baylor. Now my number two is Mount Union. Number three, St. John's. I have Whitewater fourth and Wheaton fifth. And I suspect that pretty much everybody has those five teams in those five spots in uh, one order or another. We took one more question. 
Um, from Alan Babbitt, who is at Alan Babbitt. He's the SID at Hope, so he's got uh, an up-close uh, relationship to this question. What's your pick for the best game in the Tommy's Johnny's history or the football version of the Hope-Calvin men's basketball rivalry? And I enjoyed that reference to it. I don't know about a best game, but there's definitely one that I want to spotlight, and it's the game between these two teams in 2003. 2003, pretty bad year for St. Thomas. Uh, they come into the into the game with St. John's at uh, three and five. Um, they haven't won at this point. They haven't won the 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 rivalry game in quite some time. And you know, if you know anything about um, St. John's and Division three football history, and I say two thousand three, you know that where where St. John's is headed. St. John's is headed for a pretty magical finish and a, a national championship. And John Gallardi passes Eddie Robinson's record for college uh, football coaching victories, etc. This is the game in which Gallardi tied Eddie Robinson's record. And remember that, you know, this is like one of the best St. John's teams of all time. And they need to kick a 35-yard field goal with eight seconds left to win 15-12. to 12. It's one of those things that just shows, you know, what a good rivalry is, right? You know, it's one of those games where on any given Saturday, even more so than anything else, right? Your, uh, your rival, even if they're having a bad year, could come up and bite you and St. Thomas got very close to doing so and uh, that is you know one of the reasons why I think that uh, you know this was a great rivalry and I almost just referred to it in the past tense because it's going to be going away after next year those teams are not going to play well it sounds like it I mean if if St. Thomas is a, a division one team in 2021 then there's not a lot of benefits to uh, St. John's to playing them and St. Thomas, I don't know if there's a lot of benefit to them playing each other either. It would be different, I think, if if uh, St. Thomas is like full FCS and offers you know the full sixty whatever scholarships that are available at that level. I don't see that's that happening with the St. Thomas football program out of the gate. But you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like everybody is uh, writing it off for 2021. Yeah, I mean, I just would wait to see if St. Thomas really does land in the Summit or the Pioneer League before we call of the uh the rivalry dead because both schools would love to continue the rivalry if as you mentioned if they're on the same level um you also did some nice stalling and i was able to call up a uh a list of of great johnny tommy games so i don't take credit for this this is totally tommysports.com but a couple that stand out are uh 1977 johnny's winning 25 20 with mike grant and uh moses ikenobi is that how you say his name yeah, I think. Right, guys who uh, ended up not just playing great in this in this game, um, but Mike Grant, who's the son of Bud Grant, um, became a Johnny assistant coach, and then later Eden Prairie um, head coach. And so he's a figure in Minnesota. Uh, I can know be right. They had a son who played at uh, St. Thomas later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was 92 uh, where the Tommies uh, upset the Johnny's 15-12 in St. Paul. Uh, and I think in from our era, maybe the 12-9 game from a few years back, and I don't I don't have that one handy, but I remember that kind of being the one where we were like, okay, maybe the Tommies are um are really legit. Because remember they had they had been on a down swing for a little while. And once the rivalry got good again and St. Thomas got good again, and uh, you know, St. John's actually had a couple rough years in there. Uh, it's night, you know, the, for the best, the best rivalry years are when both teams are good. And uh, now, now that they've filled target field and, and filled 
Allianz Field. Um, you know, maybe these are the, the the best years, but certainly the scores weren't weren't the most entertaining. That 2008 game is the one that was 12 to nine. It was the first one under Glenn Caruso. And if you remember too, that is the one where uh, Ben Wartman uh, is uh, ruled to not be in the end zone on first down and in, in, on inches. And then they fumble on second down and St. John's is able to run out the clock. Uh, you and I went to one in 2007, right? Is that that I always think of it as the same day as the miracle Mississippi. So that's not Oh seven. It's like uh, you came out to, you came out to Minneapolis. So it might've been 2009. No, it, it was definitely uh, pre Caruso because Don, Don Roney, was the coach, and uh, yeah, the Miracle of Mississippi is '06, I believe. All right, yeah, time time is time is slipping, slipping, slipping. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of good games, and, and they've obviously been uh, a lot of great games in the Caruso and Foshing era. Um, and they those two coaches have split the eight games against each other, and I'm sure they've been played in front of an average of about twenty six thousand fans or something like that. I know that math doesn't quite work out, but uh, go with me. All right. Well, it was definitely two thousand seven miracle in Mississippi, and the day I was there, I do remember being in your living room den, something like that, and we we're seeing the video of this finish, and we're like, "Oh my God." Uh, this is going to be uh, one for the ages. And to be honest, it was. If you have no idea what we're talking about, Google Trinity Millsaps Miracle in Mississippi. And that probably if you were like eight years old in 2007 and you're a D3 player now, you may not remember this classic. But if you've been with the podcast or with the site for a while, you'll remember that. We've told this story, but uh, I remember getting the phone call on the sidelines in Collegeville. Um, our uh, correspondent, Ron Borger, was at that game at Millsaps, and he is describing to me over the phone what was going on. And there's like, you know, 8,000 or 10,000 or so fans at uh, Collegeville, and I'm just shouting back into the phone, did what? Curry scores, the Tigers lowered him, and Kim Lowerland, and the game is over, the Tigers win! The Tigers win! The Tigers lowered him! They keep lateral in, and they score from the 39-yard line. The Tigers win the football game. The game is over. The Tigers are on the lateral. Yeah, just crazy. And, yeah, one of those rare times in 2007 where something was on YouTube like six hours later or even four hours later, which is fairly unusual for 2007, you kids. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it was a different time, man, different time time for the final word and my final word for this week is to talk about Illinois Wesleyan and quarterback Brandon Bauer this is a guy who at the beginning of the season was you know touted as a guy who we should be looking at for all America honors had come in with a, a you know a, a great record a great uh, history had done really well um, and you know it struggled a little bit in their first game of the season against lacrosse and etc etc long story short yada 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 uh, in uh, the week five game against Carroll, Norm Esch took him out and replaced him with uh, Johnny DeCanio. And, you know, going forward, somebody else has been the quarterback. Bauer, who has been like a mainstay in green and white, is basically relegated to backup duty this year now as a senior with just a handful of games left. This past week, uh, Norm Esch actually put him in the game just to take a couple of handoffs with the game out of hand to get, you know, just to let the senior play. And I wanted to spotlight that because I just thought that, 
you know, it was a great way for Coach Esch to recognize what Bauer had done for the program. And even if he wasn't necessarily the guy who was going to be the best guy, a quarterback for them, that you haven't forgotten about the guy and the guy shouldn't be relegated to not participating at all for like the final six games of his senior season, because that's got to be a tough spot to be in. I agree with that, but I'm not sure I agree that it's satisfying for an All-American candidate to get in to hand off the ball a couple times. Um, but I understand what, what you're saying and where you're coming from. What, what would be a really heartwarming story for him is if he somehow uh, got a chance to play again and, and had a uh, had a really uh, good game. Yeah, and he's taking handoffs too, not giving them. He was uh, running back. But... That's, a, all right, well, that's, a, that's a bit of a game changer. That is kind of cool. I missed that. I, I maybe just assumed quarterback give uh gives handoffs and uh yeah you're right that i i stand corrected then for my uh you know final thought i think look essentially if you most of d3 is out here in uh in the mid-atlantic in the northeast in the midwest and for any of you who live uh anywhere in in those areas uh, it's been unseasonably warm it's been a beautiful fall you've gotten probably two, three more Saturdays than you normally would to sit out there in the sun, beautiful weather, and enjoy a game, tailgate, and all that. Now it's it's starting to get cold. It rained all day on Sunday in, uh, in the east. It, the weather was yucky, and we're going to get a lot more of that coming up soon. And I think for, for those of us who are, who are following this thing this season, the rest of the way out, let's turn the page. Next podcast, we'll be back. We'll uh, it'll be week eight, and we'll start talking about playoff picks or um, you know strength of schedule, playoff criteria, rivalry games. It's it's time now. You know it starts to feel like the end of October, beginning of November outside, and, and now we can start looking towards. We can start speculating about playoffs, who's going to do well, and all that. So you know we we kept it uh, judicious and fair for the first seven weeks, and now it's time to start uh, to start thinking ahead and start wondering who the heck's going to make it to Shenandoah. Bundle up is what I'm telling you. It's going to be a uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride and it's going to be potentially a, a pretty chilly ride weeks 8, 9, 10 and 11. And this was d3football.com around the nation podcast number 252, season 13, episode 14 released on October 21st of 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, you know, you go to Apple Podcasts, you go to Spotify, you go to iHeart Podcasts. I think it's called iHeart Radio, but you get the idea. You go to Google Podcasts. Anywhere where you get podcasts, generally, there's an opportunity for you to rate the podcast. And you could do that for us. And we've really seen some uh, great, uh, nice things that people have said over the course of the past few weeks. So we definitely appreciate that. Thank you for that. Uh, you can also leave comments about a specific episode for us on the blog page. Uh, you can also reach out to us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter. And Keith, is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Yes, join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music used in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to our guest, Tony Joe White, and Sports Information Director Jennifer Jones for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. 
I did, thought we were done, and I moved my mic and bumped into my new end table over here. Got me an end table from IKEA last night. That was what uh, that was what my son wanted to do with with Saturday night, since it was just me and him. And uh, my daughter was at a Halloween party, so let's go to IKEA and Best Buy. And I was it, like, it's gonna cost me some money, but uh, but seems like a good idea. So you do you teach him how to uh, read those directions and assemble it. He's got this down. We built a bed from IKEA. Uh, we've built, I think he built a, uh, a night nightstand one time on his own, but he forgot to put the bottom of the drawer in. So he had this drawer and you just put things in and it would go right through. So I had to pull that out and fix it. But um, other than that, I mean, we we got a lot of Ikea in this house. It's, it's kind of sad. There is a, there's a definite uh, thing to understanding how those, uh, how those directions work. I am not good at those directions. Uh, my oldest kid is very good at reading those directions and putting IKEA stuff together. So, whenever we have, uh, whenever we have something from IKEA, that kid is in charge of uh, getting the assembly done. Yeah, you don't need to speak any particular language, right? It's just that weird-looking blob guy that puts stuff together. That's what bothers me, man. I, I speak language. I like language. Language be good. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.